Hello and welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Jim Rugg. I'm Ed Piscor. Today we're going to look at the most famous fetish artist of all time, Eric Stanton. And uh, I just recently finished this History of the Bizarre Underground, which is really a biography of Eric Stanton through the early 1970s. Um, so we'll kind of talk about some of his background, some of the interesting uh, history that's connected to comics. Went to school with Steve Ditko, for one, uh, but spent a lot of time with Steve Ditko professionally, so there's some cool stuff in there. And then this is a Tashin collection that reprints a bunch of his comics work. So we can kind of flip through the, both of these as we go back and forth and just kind of talk about Eric Stanton, who, you know, 50 years making comics, uh, has sold them. You know, there are half a dozen collections of his art did on you, this level. Did you show the spine of that Tashin book? Oh, yeah, I should do that. <laughs> yes, right. And, and uh, of course, that is Eric Stanton there, kind of a self-portrait. But you can see, you know... 25 issues worth of collected in here spanning different media and again 50 years of making this kind of content work from the uh, late 40s into the late 90s whenever he passed pretty much just doing this and a unique vision which is what this biography covers uh, kind of the ups and downs of that history because a lot happened in 50 years in uh, fetish art while he was active was he in the in world war ii he was in world war ii um he joined i think in 43 or something joined the navy and I don't know if he saw any any what what his action was like in there, but it did allow him the GI Bill to study art whenever he got back, which is how he ultimately ends up in class with uh, in in Jerry Robinson's class with Steve Ditko as uh, a classmate. Same. I asked that question because that is the same deal with Ditko. When I went to go see his his art show, his his nephew Mark Mark Ditko was there, and I hung out with that guy for about two and a half three hours. That GI Bill pay dividends to to those yeah. dudes that came back man and uh, a poor boy from Johnstown was able to go to a bougie-ass New York art school you know what it's it's really instrumental for Stanton as well because it allows him to practice his art because there's like a $20 a week stipend or something uh, that essentially would be like unemployment benefits but if you've got some gig that you're trying to work your way into that doesn't pay well when you're a newcomer and nobody's heard of you uh, that's that's you know allowed him to really work on this craft and practice this stuff. So, the conceit of this book is uh, what's called the bizarre underground, and it's this idea that this guy who writes about it was researching this subject, um, basically fetish art, and kept coming across the same names: John Willie, Irvin Claw, Betty Page, uh, Leonard Bertman, a couple of Times Square bookshop owners, and then a couple of artists: Gene Bilbrew and Steve Ditko. And he realized like what linked all of these guys together was Eric Stanton was connected to all these guys. He worked for these guys in the bookstores and in the, uh, in the, in the, what would have been pornography at the time. And then of course worked with Steve Ditko a lot. So gives your typical background matter. I flagged this because this is Aunt May. This is uh, Eric Stanton's Aunt May. Uh, some of you at home may be familiar with Aunt May. <laughs> he also spent a year working with Booty Rogers, an outsider artist that we learned about through Art Spiegelman's Raw magazine. Um, there's been a collection of his work published since then. Interesting story with him is, you know, didn't quite make it as a cartoonist in terms of making money, had a little bit of syndicated comic strip, did some comic books, got out of comics, I think, in like the mid-50s and went and ran an art supply store until he died at age 91. Like, as they describe it, that's the first time he made money in comics, just once he, or in art, is once he left comics. I was watching, uh, my, my dad watches that show, American Diggers, and whenever there's comic book-related stuff, they really get everything completely wrong. They flip the script yes. all the time, right? So, like, when they're showing off a box of 80s comics, they're like, oh, I think I could get about $500 for this or something like that. They go to some dude's barn who has original Booty Rogers pages 
and they're like, oh, I might be able to get $300 a page for this kind of stuff. Man, it, it, it breaks my heart when dudes that, that don't appreciate that stuff find it, because it's like, one, there's very little of that. That might be the only Booty Rogers originals on Earth, Yeah, and it's not like we're going to get more of those anytime soon. Um, Ogden Whitney mentioned as an artist that he was into and appreciated. Makes sense. A report card from Cartoonist and Illustrator School, and I believe this is the school that goes on to be SVA, but early on it wasn't. And, uh, and this is where he actually goes to school with Steve Ditko, which is just, I don't know, kind of mind-blowing whenever you, uh, when you think about these two guys. Go back one, just real quick. Like, you see this kind of thing, and it's like, it, this is a precursor to, to what we think of as underground comics. You know, like, I see, I see Spain Rodriguez in there. One of the most interesting parts about Stanton's career for me is the way these books were actually sold. Yeah. Because they were totally underground. You know, whether they were in adult, you know, in, in bookstores or whatever, behind like brown paper bags, stuff like that, or they were mail ordered. And the post office, like every guy that he worked with pretty much was busted by the feds at some point. And it was because of postal inspectors and, and feds like watching all of this kind of mail order. Um, you know, they call it sexploitation. It's before 1970s, before hardcore pornography changes everything because most of this stuff, it's not graphic. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not explicit, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. And so here you see these guys, uh, teamed up at this point and, you know, I'm kind of going through this quickly, but by 1958, uh, Stanton's divorced and working out of his house. Ditko joins him. So they're working out of like bedrooms and in, in where he's living. And uh, for 10 years, they work together, like until the late 60s, they're working together. So pretty much all of Ditko's Marvel uh, time period, he's sharing a studio with Eric Stanton. Every now and then, like you look at a piece of Stanton and you can see a Steve Ditko imprint. But Steve Ditko, not known for drawing sexy chicks, man. Like, I don't think Eric Stanton drew any, uh, well... Gwen, Gwen Stacy's, I guess. Uh, we'll say. I was going to say Mary Jane, but that's John well, Romita. These people were such pariahs. You know, like Betty Page was a pariah in, in, in culture at the time. And I have to imagine that Stanton was just a complete fringe guy. Like, there's a, I love to point out a Ditko appearance just because you don't see that many pictures of him. So yeah. it's kind of fun to see those. Yeah, you're right. This stuff was definitely like, you know, I said all of his partners get busted like pretty much throughout the 20 years or so that he's working for these guys. They also, I mean, here's here's your example. Like, don't you see Ditko all through this page? Totally, especially like that that creepy, eerie era of uh, Steve Ditko when he's when he's doing the washes. And yeah, like maybe that was Eric Stanton's imprint because I think of ink washes when I think of Stanton and, I, and, and you see inked washed Steve Ditko, but did he do the washes? What Was that Stanton, perhaps? Some of that is in here, and, and it suggests the same thing. Um, but, of course, the women are the other thing, you know? Like, uh, <laughs> that's what Stanton's known for. So you see a good-looking woman in, in Ditko art, and it's that's one of the things that gets cited. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. I don't think you ever see it, man. Like, like I'm thinking about the specific creepy eeries uh, that Ditko did, and, and some of these women, it could be, you know, Klinger from uh, M.A.S.H. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, this is uh, 62 is, is the date on this. And this is one of those pieces that's pointed at as being like a significant contribution to the design of Spider-Man because we're seeing like the Spider-Man marks, uh, you know, applied about the time Spider-Man shows up, maybe even a little bit before Spider-Man shows up. Right. And these guys are working, you know, next to each other uh, doing this stuff. So yeah. Yeah, look at that, man. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a visual, visually suggestive of Spider-Man. Doesn't that look like Don Simpson? right there a little bit those kind of marks 
Yeah, a little bit. The other thing that I take away from this, they cite this as being color scheme the same as Spider-Man, and again from that time period. That's stretching thin. I think so too. Um, but what I point out is Stanton, like some of these guys, they do everything. They do ink, they do pencil drawing, they do washes, they do color painting stuff. You get trained as an illustrator back in the day. You you're, you don't know where it's going to come. Like one day you're you're tracing brassiers that are going to be in ads in newspapers. The next day you got to draw a fucking Big Mac and, and paint it. You know, like these guys, it's the Mad Men era. Yeah, no doubt about it. Photo by Steve Bitko of uh, Stanton. There. He he really does look like a Anton Lavey. Yeah, it does totally. Devotee, hundred percent. And uh, and you see your uh, your Aunt May in real life, and your Aunt May as a uh, Spider-Man supporting character. Superheroes and fetishists makes a lot of sense with Spider-Man's costume, you know, because um, that face mask that's so distinct is very different than what you were seeing a hero wear at that time. Pretty gimpy. Absolutely. So this traces through. Basically, his career, as I said, up until, you know, the 70s, and it's him bouncing from, like, publisher to publisher, and these guys were all, whatever exploitation happened at Marvel and DC and Charlton and all these companies, it was absolutely in effect, like, it was just how cartoonists were treated, because all these guys, they would pay him once and just reprint the thing forever. Uh, if, if he ever got originals back, it was very rare in this time period, so, like, all the terrible treatment that you would see applied to cartoonists in a more mainstream setting they applied here too that's a good title man <laughs> yeah attention k fabers we need your help to support our comics making habits we are both eisner award-winning cartoonists and uh this is what's available from us at the moment ed piscor's red room the anti-social network the trade paperback collection of the first four issues of the graphic violent masterpiece red room the outlaw comics contemporary masterpiece this is uh 200 pages, so in addition to a very nice production job on the actual comics reproduced in this collection, there's also some great back matter, including the uh, first draft, kind of the, the writing in comics form of the first draft. Dude, this is the most valuable stuff in my life. Whenever I was a kid and I would find, like, glimpses of this, absolutely love that you included this in the collection. There's also notes from Ed on some of the details of this story, some behind-the-scenes stuff, pencils. Um, so a really nice collection. The other piece of Red Room that you guys need to put on your calendar is March 9th, Red Room Trigger Warnings, issue number one will be in comic book stores. Uh, due to some ransomware issues, this may be the most rare issue of Red Room. So you want to pick this up whenever you see it on March 9th. Tell your local comic shop to set one aside for you. And there are some cool variants. This is your main cover and uh, should tell you pretty clearly what this issue is all about, <laughs> what you've got in store for yourself whenever you pick this up. But uh, here is my variant, an homage to Zap Comics, the Robert Crumb classic. A lot of people are watching this on their phones, man, and they, they comment on your prolapsed anus, but that's really a rat. That is a rat. That's that's classic, uh, you know, classic torture kind of techniques there. Yeah. Um, I, I first learned about these in Brett Easton Ellis' American Psycho, and I think he learned about it from possibly the CIA. So uh, <laughs> nothing new there, you know, not reinventing the wheel. Uh, Peach Momoko, Cottage Industry, as you say, Ed, with another beautiful entry in her Red Room variant covers. And your own variant, uh, as you described it, sort of a more book-like take on the uh, on this cover design. So if you guys are watching out there, like I said, heads up, these are going to be scarce. So pick up any Red Room trigger warning number ones that you see when you see them if you want a copy. Coincidentally, my first uh, comic book is coming out 
March 16th, Hulk Grand Design Monster. This will be available wherever you buy comic books. And please pre-order these. Let your comic shop know that you want one of these. It is 500 issues of Incredible Hulk, 40 years of history, distilled down into two oversized issues that will be out in March 16th and then in April. And uh, you're going to want these, the perfect jump on point for longtime Hulk fans or first-time Hulk readers. And uh, like I said, let your comic shop know that you want them so that they can pre-order these books. And these come in a variety of nice covers. In addition to my cover, we've got one by cartoonist Kayfabe's own Ed Piscor doing a fantastic homage to both Todd McFarlane and the first appearance of Wolverine with this original costume by Ramita and Herb Trimpey. Man, I dig that comic. This is one of those ideas that when I see it, I'm a little bit jealous that I didn't think of. That's a really good idea. You've got plenty of good ideas <laughs> in uh, Hulk Grand Design. I read it. Uh, Marcos Martin doing the Hulk transformation. Uh, pretty fun there. I don't know how many of the versions of this I, I've drawn in the last year, but uh, the classic transforming into the Hulk. And, of course, Peach Momoko, who we've already mentioned and probably needs no introduction to uh, comics fans out there, doing a really cool She-Hulk and Hulk. And uh, these are available in pre-order. These are not retailer exclusive. So order one of them, order a set of all four of them, pick the one you like best, whatever works for you, but tell your local comic shop to order one. Let's show Marvel what the kayfabe effect is all about. Um, some of these were for like pros, you know, like the paperbacks, salacious paperbacks. So sure. it would just be these, uh, these cover images. But I find all of this stuff pretty interesting. I, I feel like it's very closely connected to comics. Comics were more accepted, but they were still considered like second-class art Absolutely. You know, at this time period. So I think there's, it's, it's interesting that you have a guy who's kind of coming from those same values, influenced by the same type of, of artist, but applying it to an adult, uh, an adult audience. Yeah, it's, it's real. You know, this is kitsch culture. Like, I could see this. If this stuff is coming out in the 50s, I could see this uh, influencing, you know, Russ Meyer for, for his, like, later body of work. You know, I saw Faster Pussycat Kill Kill type imagery, you know, several pages back. Absolutely. By the way, how creepy is that clown? Yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> that was, for some reason, like, paintings of clowns were, uh, they, they were a deal back in, in the 20th century. A little, uh, little Dan Klaus nod. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other part that gets interesting with him is as these publishers go to prison or die or whatever, eventually one of them leaves him. I mean, look how Ditko-esque this is. Yeah, I mean, that's Ditko. Ditko drew that guy. Yeah. As, as it gets towards the 70s, one of these dudes retires and gives Stanton his mailing list of 20,000 names. We often, when we're looking at some of these comics that are having their giveaways and like just begging for, for uh, your address, it's how valuable those mailing lists are. And once he gets hold of that mailing list, he starts self-publishing. And at that point, it basically turns, he becomes, in terms of success, what, why Tashin's doing book collections of him and high color, you know, reprints of this stuff. But it's really interesting because his life is kind of shit up to that point. He has a debilitating back that um, he discovers yoga one morning when he can't sleep. And again, completely changes his life. Like starts practicing that, becomes a big advocate for it. Uh, ends up marrying again uh, somebody else. And uh, I'm not sure if this, is the, if this is the story or not. But one of these has a story about this woman who met him through walking down the street and somebody approached her about being in one of his wrestling videos. So he was making like women's apartment wrestling videos, which that's the weirdest thing to me because those used to be on magazine, wrestling magazine covers, like some of the more fringy wrestling magazines. I've got collections of like wrestling photographers and those will be included in many of them. That's a whole subgenre that 
it goes on today. Yes, like, like, I, I guess so. Like there's there's a lady that you know edits her videos here sometimes, and, and, and like you know she, she does all kinds of weird shit, including that chick wrestling inside of just you know they'll go get an Airbnb. <laughs> I'm so sorry for you Airbnb people thinking that people say, are upstanding citizens that. and shit because they just go go get an Airbnb so that they have these fresh locations, put on their rubber suits, and freaking. You know, bring in a little baby pool, some KY jelly filled with that shit, and just start mashing. Man, any uh, any any chance of me get wanting to make some passive income through renting a property? Out the door. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> I bet there's so many horror stories for that kind of thing. By the way, this is his checklist. Like, the guy who put this together, he worked closely with Stanton's family. Um... His second family, he was very close to. His first family, they, they kind of cut him off. And then before he died, like two years before he died, he reconnected with his first sons. But his second family had a son and daughter close to them all the way to the end. And this book is written with a lot of information from them. But you can see, like, how much stuff, you know, this checklist is, is 30 pages of single space, two columns, um, just going through all of that. And then notes on the actual academic background of what, what he's writing about here. It's a good biography is what I'm saying. Yeah, like, it's like great. Heavily researched on a, on a subject that I find interesting just because it's, it's a self-publisher is the way that I know Stanton. So interesting in that regard. And then this is a Tashin book that I got some many years ago. You can see what is printed here in the table of contents. And again, he would print these things in pretty high quality offset editions, like almost like mini comics, maybe a Maybe this size, some of them maybe a little bit bigger. You and, never uh, see it. No, they're expensive. You can find them, you know, like on eBay or something, but they're expensive. Um, now they are. And I think they might still even sell them through his website, but probably at, at pretty high prices. And the print quality of the ones that I've actually seen, phenomenal. Like you put them next to whatever book's coming out in, you know, 78 or something. Way better production values on these things. But it, it speaks to like this different industry that he's serving, you know, like he's selling to European collectors and stuff. Sex sales, man. And, and uh, you know, like it's the reason Fanta did Eros comics and things like you like you could you could you could make some some money if at, at this time you would have had bit have been considered uh, shameless. And by the way, Eros did like at least four comic books that, that reprint his work. That, uh, that but that's probably how we know him, you on, know. On my list, I yeah. always try to think of like like how did this guy even get on my radar? And it had to be through stuff like that because it's not like I'm digging for right. you know kitsch culture of the 1950s. And my big complaint work. with this Tashin book is they don't date this stuff. Like this is the first story that they reprint, and it's Irvin Claw, which was the first guy he worked with. So I'm guessing this is from the 50s, and you can see this is. This is a, a stretch from a comic book. They would sell these, I believe, like a front and back of a piece of paper printed, and they were called serials. So you'd buy like 12 installments or something to get like the full story. So almost like uh, periodical comics in a way. Um, but as we get further along, I'll skip ahead a little bit, you start to see some of these other styles emerge and clearly the language of comics being employed in these stories. One color printing, probably the reason you're seeing like an ink wash, but uh, you know, not, not your full color stuff. This is like photos painted on top. Yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, it's Fumetti with a little bit of illustration. And some of it may be more illustrated than other parts, but like, how bizarre. Very looking. uncanny valley. What is that? Is that a dick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a dude there. Uh. You know, like, if you look, it's even the background. It's like untouched photo. And then, you know, a little bit of details and things being touched up in the front. It's super peculiar looking. Yeah. One of the weirder looks of stuff 
no idea. I guess you would develop these photos and then paint directly onto your uh, onto your on your photos. And that's a way, huh? Like it beats that artograph projector machine. I always like the paste up letters. You know, you can even see the word balloons kind of drawn in. Like I always love the, that the carrots there. You, you would you would see that stuff in even uh, little Annie Fanny. This makes me wonder. Like I've heard people talk about Innocenti's Daredevil run as being like flipping the genders, essentially. You know where. Uh, Typhoid Mary or whatever is the more masculine figure and, and Daredevil's in the more submissive role. That's essentially what Stanton's comics are. And um, it's funny to hear it described like he did every kind of fetish comic and says he wasn't interested in hardly any of them. The only stuff he was really interested in was like the Amazons, again, like flipping that gender role, which he got to do more of as he became in control of that mailing list and was self-publishing to do what he wanted as opposed to what people were paying him to do but pretty impressive, like, just from a craft standpoint. If you're going to make these kinds of comics, like, you have to this be a, a good figure artist. This is a really good fight scene here. This lady kicks the shit out of this dude. I, I, I read this setup earlier. I, I read something <laughs> about a dog having diarrhea. Yes, yeah, that's what it comes down. How they started fighting is I think her dog crapped on a sidewalk or something and, and pissed him off. Fattening him up. How about that, man? This is Frank Terran quality uh, Punisher busted up nose and stuff. I was, I was, and, and Frank Quitely color. <laughs> Knee to the face. So, pretty interesting artist. Like I say, uh, you know, they tag him as being like the most famous fetish artist and, and you know, probably we'll get some comments describing other people. But besides being uh, famous, is prolific. Because like I said, there's you can find a half a dozen of these books that, that reprint his work. And they're like 20, 30 page comics, these things. You know, and pretty rigorous approach to that comics making. I also like the lettering that's not totally polished. Yeah, absolutely, all of it. All of it is like a little divorced from what we think of as professional comic books. Yeah. But he was you, probably like more successful than, yeah, than uh, you know, almost definitely. kind of bought, Don Heck or anybody. Once he got that mailing list and he's working for himself, he bought the house in Connecticut with uh, with all the... Right uh, next to Bushmiller? <laughs> exactly, exactly right. To give everybody some idea of how successful he is. And Graphite as you're finished. And Walt Kelly and those guys are like, Stanton, listen, can you change your name on your mailbox? You're kind of <laughs> dropping our, our, uh, our real estate value. Yeah, it's it's different collectors showing up at Stanton's house than Bushmillers yeah. <laughs> looking for originals. <laughs> uh, but one of those artists that uh, I was excited to actually see a biography and learn a little bit more about him. It, and um, it just it, it it it's one of those things where like you start exploring comics and sort of the fringe of comics, and it it gets broader and broader. Like it's a vast world of uh, these specialists. You know, the other way to consider his work, I think, is through the lens of like European publishers because that's who he'd have been competing with or selling to that market a lot, like in the 80s. So he's probably looking at graphic albums and things and being like, oh, that, that, that production value, how do I bring that to the work I'm making? And we're talking about the, 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 the craftsmen, like, like the Guido Creepacks and, and, and those guys are out there making like very, I mean, they're, they're all in on comics. Like this is like, feels like moonlighting kind of looking comics, man. Those guys are all in. He's probably picking some stuff up just craft wise for, putting his pages together but we you know we came back from hawaii not too long ago going down and coming back like at least 13 hours of travel both ways man coming back home was much more brutal <laughs> but but uh you know this was on your mind and i'm so glad you finished uh reading it i do i do have just like a couple of uh questions to sort of go along with this stuff that maybe uh was included in the biography maybe not um who like were these publishers, were these all New York based and mostly selling uh, 
in in New York? Is this a, a, a staple of 42nd Street stores? Like, yeah. what, like, what was the model for that stuff? A couple of them had sh stores in 42nd Street. But I mean, like, these guys are, you know, they're, they're connected, some of them. You know what I mean? So it's like, porn's a big thing that organized crime would distribute. Yeah. You know, you'd hear about, like, um, or, or like, you know, like the behind the scenes slot machine, stuff like that, that would sort of get distributed around viewing booths, things of that nature. Yeah. So I have a... My impression is this is connected to all that. But all that changes in like 70, 71, whenever, I guess there was a big court case. And I think that's talked about in here, but it changes the nature of what's pornography and, and sort of opens the door for hardcore. And at that point, like this totally changes because up to then, this was very heavily policed. And after that, it's sort of like, this is nothing. You know, this is not where our problems are anymore. And also we have no legal, like, you know, this just isn't something courts are going after at that point. And it becomes the mail order thing. So it was it was definitely in Times Square, you yeah. know, all those shops that you hear about, like two of the guys, he worked with like four main guys, two of them had shops in Times Square. Um, the others were sort of like distro, publisher distro kind of stuff that would have warehouses that would get raided. Um, a lot of the, the paperback book covers, that's the kind of stuff they might distribute. And in some cases, like 600,000 of them might be seized in a warehouse raid. So they were doing numbers. You know, I don't know exactly the uh, the outlets or whatever, but I think it went far beyond New York because otherwise, like, you know, you'd be selling it to like one out of eight New Yorkers <laughs> or something if it was just New York. You know, it was, it was an industry. Like, they had figured it out. It wasn't all above the board, but they were definitely... Um, you know, active enough to be able to move large quantities of this stuff. Super and fascinating. Stuff that he didn't get paid for, you know, and, and there, there weren't any royalties on what they were moving. Uh, not not for Eric Stanton at that time. Uh, so pretty soon in, in the near future, we're going to look at the complete zap, and there's a oral history in the back there that's that, that I've been reading over over time, and uh, one, of the, one of the key bits to those guys' successes was... Um, they held on to their masters. Whenever it was time to work with a new publisher, like they had the films. So, you know, these publishers, they couldn't run off a couple extra more, uh, like on their own or anything like that. It's, it's what really attracted me to Stanton is like the self-publishing piece. Like once he takes control of himself, you know, it, it's not that dissimilar to like a Frank Frazetta who's going to save his originals, you know, even if, it, if he gets paid a little bit less for that first printing or whatever, the thing, but it gives him that control that he can then monetize the rest of his life and beyond. And then the other angle with like those underground guys is the distribution piece. Right. Because, you know, like that's ultimately the rise of the direct market in some ways, this idea of like a publisher being able to distribute to specialty stores. It's not different than, than this model. Those that's stores true. may be different. The content may be different, but I love that business part of it, you know, because like it's stuff we still try to figure out now you know own your work be able to control the distribution yourself um, a lot of benefit to it and eric stanton one more example of that benefit fascinating conversation i'm very interested in reading this book k fabers like follow subscribe to the youtube channel hit the bell we'll notify you when new vids are available what is out there jimmy hulk grand design tell your local comic shop you want one of those tell your local comic shop you want all four of those pick the cover of your choice uh and, and let them know to pre-order that book. This is when we actually sell the comics at this stage. So need your help, kayfabers. Uh, let those comic shops, if you're planning to buy a copy and you have a good shop, let them know ahead of time that you, uh, you want to reserve that copy. It will make a difference in how they order. And uh, we appreciate that difference. You can also follow me on patreon.com slash jimrug, where I am putting together basically my process zine of making the Hulk grand design. So uh, if you're interested in how I actually make these comics, you can find a lot more of that stuff, original art behind the scenes at my Patreon. Red Room, the anti-social network, uh, trade paperback is in stores right now. About 70 pages of extra material to go along with the four issues of the anti-social network that, uh, that were out in 2021. 
but we're into a new year, man. 2022 is going to see the publication of Red Room Trigger Warnings, beginning with issue number one. Uh, on March 9th, it, at your local comic shops, Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit is the name of the game. Every issue, completely self-contained, uh, going to be coming out on a monthly basis. Four of those will compile together to create the, uh, the, the Red Room Trigger Warnings season of uh, comic books. You can read these comics before they hit paper at my Patreon, patreon.com slash edpiscor. Uh, we have links to our link trees in the description directly below this video where you can get to all that stuff. What else, Jim? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. Give them those margin orders. We're going to be on our way. Read more comics.